presence with singing. Amen. Be thankful unto him. Bless his name. For the Lord, he is great. Amen. So good to serve the Lord, to know him. What an honor and a privilege we have to do that. Amen. So thankful for the presence of the Lord in this place. It's just good to be with the people of God. How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Amen. Amen. Well, you can be seated tonight. As Pastor has said, we're going to embark on a little bit of an adventure. And um, Pastor has been feeling the urge and, of course, of the Holy Ghost. And, of course, we're, as he mentioned, moving toward our prayer conference. But really, I don't know if you've sensed it, there is such a, uh, I don't know what the right word is, a uh, travail in the earth and in the world, the urgency of the hour presses upon us, and we feel and we sense that in the spirit, and it seems to be drawing or pushing, I don't know which one it is, closer into his presence, and and part of that is this need for prayer and a need to be in the presence of the Lord and to make it a priority in our lives. Now, I know it's probably cliche and maybe you, uh, we hear it all the time. Of course, we need to be a people of prayer. We need to be persons of prayer, not just that we are a church of prayer, but we need to be individuals of prayer. And uh, there are so many different aspects of our spiritual disciplines, but we can't afford to get out of balance in one way or the other. And prayer is one way in which we communicate with the Lord, and it's a way in which the Lord communicates with us. And coupled with his word, these are the things that found us, and they stabilize us, and they keep us in the world in which we live. And they give us hope. And the writer of Hebrews said that hope is an anchor for our soul. And and I see prayer and the word as the two prongs on that anchor that stabilize us and keep us. The word gives us precision and it is the living word of God. It gives us um, what we need in a, in a different kind of way. But there is something that happens in prayer where the Spirit of the Lord makes His Word come alive to us. If we don't have the Spirit of the Lord active in our lives, then we run the risk of the Word becoming purely academic. But if we don't have the Word in our lives, we run the risk of our prayer becoming completely emotional and leading us astray according to the desires of our own heart. So these two things have to be present in our lives, and they balance us, and they keep us. And the writer of the book of James said, Receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. And it is that spirit that prepares our hearts and allows us to receive the word. Now, I know I don't have to convince you tonight of the need of prayer, but I would remind you, I think, 
maybe we're all um, still learning. Do you consider yourself a disciple tonight, or are you the master? Right, we are disciples, and we're learning, and we're continuing to grow. We're apprenticed to the master. And the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And I think that is the cry of all disciples. Teach me to pray. And I don't, I certainly, I don't want to give the uh, appearance or for you to have the idea that I feel like um, I'm any kind of an expert on this topic. But I do believe there are truths in the word of the Lord that we can explore together and we can all grow together. When the disciples asked the Lord, teach us to pray, he did. And he gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is really a pattern of prayer. And there are a number of different patterns of prayer in the scripture. We could just as easily walk through the Lord's Prayer and explore it. And maybe if it hasn't been done recently, we may want to review that at some point. Very valuable. But we have talked about this, and I think this will be, I hope, this will be helpful to us to take a look at this type that is laid out for us in the Old Testament. Now, let me just give you a little bit of an introduction for those of you who may not be as familiar with the Old Testament tabernacle. First of all, our God is a God of detail. And, and let me just say this too. This is not original this idea of praying through the tabernacle, if you've been around for a while, you know this is not original to me. There are many others who have done it, and it is some have made it the pattern of prayer for their entire lives, and it is well known. Uh, if you're familiar with the Pentecostals of Alexandria, this is central to some of the ways in which they pray, and uh, their leadership has prayed through the years. So this is not some grand new revelation, but... Uh, Again, the writer of the book of Hebrews says we ought to give the more earnest heed to those things which we've heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. So that's what we're endeavoring to do. And our God is a God of detail, and there are no accidents in the scripture. There are no uh, things that the Lord left out or added in that weren't necessary. He didn't leave them out accidentally or add them in and think later, well, that probably wasn't necessary. The Lord has put things there for his purpose and for his cause. We read about creation, and there's two chapters, and there's about 40 verses or so in the Bible related to the creation. And you can examine the vastness not only of creation on the earth and the variety and the diversity, but you can go home after dark if the clouds clear here in a few days, and you can begin to look and peer into the heavens and see stars, and they're more than you can count, and that's just the ones you can see. But the Lord covered the story of creation in about 40 verses, two chapters. But when it came time for the tabernacle, there are about 400 verses related to the layout of the tabernacle and God's plan of redemption. There are countless verses related to this. And I don't think that is an accident. Let me give you a little bit of background. You may remember the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt. God miraculously delivered them and he brought them out. He took them with the initial, the Passover, Exodus chapter 12. And he delivered them through the Red Sea. 
And when they had made their clean break from Egypt, the Lord called Moses up into the mount. And you will remember there was this great uh, thundering and these great manifestations of the presence of God. It frightened the people. And they said, we don't want to hear from God. We want you to go talk to God, Moses. We, we don't want to hear. This is too frightening. And so they sent Moses up into the mountain. And they said, whatever he tells us to do, we'll do it. And Moses pled with the people to be obedient. And of course, before he could even come down from the mountain, they were already being disobedient. And uh, he came down ultimately with the Ten Commandments. But the Lord being the Lord, he knew exactly what they would need. And so with the Ten Commandments, he also gave Moses the plan for the tabernacle. And if you will, turn to Exodus chapter 25, and we'll just read a few verses here out of Exodus. Oh, sorry about that. Out of Exodus 25, we'll read just a, a few verses. But really what is happening here to get the full picture the Lord is giving the Ten Commandments. These are the things that the children of Israel are to obey. And along with those commandments, he gives the tabernacle, which is what to do when they don't obey. <laughs> so the Lord knew from the get-go that this was not going to be successful initially, and there would need to be um, a way to get back into the presence of the Lord, to enter into the presence of the Lord. So Exodus chapter 25, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. This is the offering which you shall take of them, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and badger skins and wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, for sweet incense, onyx stones, stones to be set in the ephod, in the breastplate. Verse 8 and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And verse 9, according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. So this was the Lord's command to Moses, take an offering, use the materials that you get and build this tabernacle or this sanctuary for me after the pattern that I will show you because the Lord wanted a place to dwell among his people. This is certainly of the type of building it is. It would be hard to imagine any other building having anywhere near this level of detail as far as instruction and the ways in which it, were, it was to be built. When you began to realize the children of Israel were now in the wilderness, they had been delivered from the Red Sea, but they were a nomadic people. And they were moving from place to place. And they were following the pillar of fire at night and the cloud in the day. But they were carrying with them this tabernacle, this sanctuary that God had shown Moses the pattern for and that they had built and prepared for him. So it's genius in many ways, not only in its layout and all of these different things and the articles of furniture, but the fact that the Lord took all of this into account and he made this thing portable. That they were able to pack it up and carry it with them. And when they would come to their stopping place, 
they would unpack it, and there it would be. Now, there's a couple of key characteristics overall for this. First of all, this was to be the one place where they worshipped. And in fact, when you read through the history of the nation of Israel, you will find that where they really got into trouble was when they started worshipping in places other than the place that God had given them. And this was, the Lord was making it very clear, first of all, that his presence would be there. So why would you worship anywhere else if his presence is there? makes no sense to go anywhere else to worship unless you're worshiping a different God, unless there is idolatry involved. And so when you read through, and I know when you, you do your Bible reading, it all kind of starts running together. You're reading through the Chronicles and the Kings and all of that. But every time you read where they went up to the groves to sacrifice, just remember that was disobedience. Because sacrifice and worship was supposed to happen in this one tabernacle that God had given to them. The other thing to remember as we begin to walk through this is keep in mind every aspect. And we will, this is one of my favorite topics, by the way, because it is inexhaustible. You can go as deep as you want to go. And you will not plumb the depths of the types that the Lord has laid out. But let me just say this. In every aspect of this building, if you would call it that, in the Old Testament, in every aspect of it, it symbolizes Christ. And it points to Christ. And you can see it, first of all, if this is the one place where they are to worship and the one means by which they are to enter into the presence of God, is by this tabernacle in this location with the furniture laid out in this way, that is a perfect type of Christ. He is the way. All roads do not lead to God. I know it's popular to say, and I know it makes people feel good, but it's not scriptural. There is one way, and his name is Jesus Christ. And, and the Lord begins to teach this lesson very early in the life of the nation of Israel. That is the purpose for this tabernacle, is to show them that there is one way. But the beauty of this, as we walk through it, everything points to Christ. Now, you know enough to know that not only was there a building, there were places to offer sacrifices. There were altars and there were... Um, places where washings took place, and there were priests who operated inside this tabernacle, and there were all of these elaborate rituals, and they were all laid out, and every one of them was pointed to Christ. He was the building itself. He was the tabernacle, but he was also the sacrifice that would be offered for sin, and he was our great high priest who entered in by his own sacrifice into the presence of the Lord. He was the priest, he was the sacrifice, he was the altar, he was the tabernacle, he was all of it. And every piece of it points to a different aspect of him. That's why we sometimes sing, it's all in him. There's nothing outside 
of Jesus. As Brother Landon preached on Sunday night, other foundation can no man lay than that is laid Jesus Christ. Amen? So, in the interest of time, I'm not going to read a lot of scripture, but I do want to walk through a little bit of the structure of the way this tabernacle is laid out. So, pull up that first slide there. I hope you can see this is a bit of an overview. You'll notice, first of all, it's the overall tabernacle is rectangular in shape. And on the narrow end closest to you, you will see uh, a doorway or a gate. And then inside that gate is what was called the outer court. And in that outer court, there were two pieces of furniture. There was the first one that you will see there is the altar of sacrifice or the brazen altar. So uh, the first thing you see when you walk into the Old Testament tabernacle is a place of sacrifice. The Lord is not one to necessarily take it easy on us up front. He does not believe in lowering the bar to get you in and then changing the rules. You walk in the door, and the first thing you see is a place of sacrifice. And so on this altar of sacrifice, you can see uh, there are various pictures that you can find, and I probably didn't find the best ones, and I certainly didn't find the expensive ones. I was looking for free ones. But there is an altar of sacrifice. Um, It was a rectangular altar, and it was a place where... They would take and offer, and there's an entire study of the different kinds of offerings that took place in the tabernacle. But suffice it to say, according to regulation, there would be an offering to offer for sin sin offerings and various offerings. But you would bring your sacrifice, an animal, and you would bring it to the priest. The priest would kill the animal, and then he would offer it on the altar of sacrifice. And there was a fire burning there. And it would burn and consume the sacrifice on the altar. And so this is your welcome to the house of the Lord. Aren't you glad there's not an altar in the foyer tonight as you come in? Aren't you thankful to be part of the New Testament? Amen. But this was the entranceway into the presence of the Lord. Notice, I mean, this is the one way to get into the presence of God. This is where the presence of God is going to dwell. And when you come in the door, this is what you see, a place of sacrifice. This was a messy business because of the number of sacrifices that would be offered. And they would offer every day a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. And then there were times of the year when um, the people would come and they would bring sacrifices to be offered on this altar. And it was um, a messy place. And think of this too, this is a portable building. We're not talking about concrete floors. We're not talking about tile or marble or any such thing that can just be hosed down or, you know, with drains plumbed in and all that niceties of the modern world. We're talking about an altar that sits there on the ground and blood and everything else that goes along with it on the priests, on the altar, and on the ground. And the regulations were that that altar was to be anointed with blood. They would take blood and put it on that altar, put it on other pieces of furniture that we will come to. But this is 
a symbol. It is a type of sacrifice. And of course, we see that the sacrifice of Christ is typified here very easily. We'd better keep moving. So the next piece of furniture in line is, um, as you move past that entrance gate, past the altar of sacrifice, you'll find the brazen or brass laver. This is where there was water and there was a place of washing. So the priests would offer the sacrifice on the altar and then they would wash themselves for the remainder of their obligations and duties as they, as they worked their way through their service in the tabernacle. Now, it's interesting, there is Exodus chapter 30, I believe, the commandment to the priest. In case you don't think baptism is all that important, just keep this little verse in mind out of Exodus chapter 30 that says, The Lord's command to the priest was that they wash as part of their service before they went into the next chamber. They would wash that they die not. Not if you want to, not if you think you really need to clean up. You are to wash before you move to the next step that you die not. So what was that next step? We've talked about the outer court and the two pieces of furniture that are in the outer court. And what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks is looking at these pieces of furniture in a little more detail, walking through them. But you'll notice there that there is inside that outer court, there is another chamber that is created with curtains and and uh, all sorts of skins, and that's a study in and of itself. It's multiple layers of curtains and skins that are there to protect from the weather. Um, and it looks really ugly from the outside, but when you would go inside, you would see the beauty of the curtains and the linens and so forth that are inside there. That is called the holy place. And that holy place was actually divided into two pieces also. So before the priest could go in there, they offered sacrifice, they washed at the laver, and then the priest would go into the holy place. What you can't see, there's not a great picture of it here. Maybe you can kind of infer it from the drawing. There are five pillars at the entrance of the holy place. And the priest would go through there. Once they had finished that part of the ritual, they would go through those five pillars into the holy place. In the outer part of the holy place, there were three pieces of furniture. The first was the table of showbread. And then there was also a, and that had 12 loaves or 12 cakes, one for each of the tribes. And then there was also the golden candlestick, the seven branches of the candlestick. You're probably familiar with menorahs and seven branches of a candlestick. It's the same idea here in the holy place. And then there was the altar of incense. It was a place where there was constantly a fire on this altar and they would offer sweet smelling savor. It was the last step before going past the second curtain. And so in this holy place is where uh, they would do service. And this was a regular thing. But then once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest alone would go past the holy place and go into the most holy place or the holy of holies. And inside the holy of holies, there was one piece of furniture. And that, of course, is the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where the presence of God dwelled. The Lord said, I will dwell between the cherubims. He's talking about those two angels 
that sit on top of that box. Inside the box were articles of God's provision. First of all, there were the two tables, the Ten Commandments, the tables of the law that God had given to Moses. Those were in there. But then also inside the box, there was Aaron's rod. You remember the story where Aaron had a rod and uh, it budded almonds. Aaron's rod that budded was also inside the ark. And there was a pot of manna that was miraculously preserved. Now think about that. They were, when they were taking manna, they were taking it every day. And if they took an extra bit, it would spoil. It didn't last past the day. They were supposed to take only the day's worth. Except on Friday, they could take two days' worth to make it through the Sabbath. So one day a week, you could gather enough for two days so that you didn't have to gather again on the Sabbath. But any other day, if you gathered two days' worth, you were going to have worms and stink. Except for the part of the manna that went in the pot that went inside the Ark of the Covenant. It didn't last one day or two days. It lasted years and years in there, a symbol of God's provision for them. And the beauty of this was that on top of those tables of the law and encompassing God's provision and protection, there was this lid with these angels that sat over that, and they, their wings touched each other, and their heads were bowed, and the presence of the Lord dwelled between those two angels. I don't know what it would have looked like, but he was identified as the one that dwells between the cherubims. This was literally the presence of God. And so whenever, this was very serious business on the Day of Atonement for that high priest to go in. And this is the beautiful thing if you go and read Hebrews chapter 9. The writer of Hebrews kind of summarizes all of this, but he makes the point that if you read in detail the Old Testament ritual, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, see, we, call, we talk about, in glib terms, we talk about the dispensation of law and the dispensation of grace. I don't think, I'm not sure God sees it that way because there was a lot of grace in the Old Testament. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. He is specifically there to make an atonement for his sins, but he is sinful. So he would take a sacrifice and he would go into the Holy of Holies and he, a sinful man, would offer sacrifice on his own behalf to make himself clean. And then he would go out And he would get sacrifice again, and he would go in then as a clean man on behalf of the nation of Israel. But the writer of the book of Hebrews makes the the strong contrast and says, But Christ, being offered, entered in once into the holy place. He did not have to enter on behalf of himself. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was the sinless priest. He was the one who could go in and make sacrifice for the people because he didn't need to make sacrifice for himself. And so this is 
kind of the overview of, um, of what that tabernacle looked like, what it, what it was like. The thing we should, it, what's so interesting about this is with all of the curtains and all of the boards and everything, we'll talk some more about these as we work our way through this, I think. But this portable, relatively small little building that they carried around with them everywhere they went became the basic blueprint for Solomon's temple. And this grand building that was built and then was destroyed and then Herod built another one that perhaps, well, certainly was not as grand but was uh, around the time of Christ. You will remember if you read carefully through the Gospels and in the book of Acts, it talks about the court of the Gentiles. In these larger permanent buildings, there was an outer, outer court where anyone could go. And then only those Hebrews or those Jewish people could go into the outer court where they would offer their sacrifice, give them to the priests and so forth. So this relatively simple building in the wilderness, this tabernacle in the wilderness became the blueprint for these grand buildings that would come later. But even more than that, it is a blueprint the Bible tells us, of the tabernacle that's in the heavens. And while we're never really instructed, you know, the disciples said, teach us to pray, and the Lord gave them the Lord's Prayer. I don't suppose you can find a verse where we're instructed to pray the tabernacle. But I do think it's useful, and I think it's beneficial, because the tabernacle, if you think about this, it laid out the means of access for those people into the presence of God. And it was a type of what Christ would do on his crucifixion and at his resurrection. And it is a physical representation of a tabernacle that is in the heavens. Well, if this is the means whereby people enter into the presence of the Lord, then that seems to reason it would be a reasonable pattern for prayer as we would be our desire to enter into the presence of the Lord. And so we'll see that as we begin to go through um, these next few weeks. I'm excited because it may seem a little bit dry. It may seem a little bit, um, I don't know, a little bit academic at first. But when you begin to tie all of the scriptures together, I think what you'll see is that there is something very powerful that we can tap into And it is a pattern that will help to keep us on track. Now, we're almost out of time for tonight. But what I would like to do in after just kind of providing a bit of an overview is just let's talk very quickly about one part of the the tabernacle. And that would be the door, the gate, the entrance. As you see in this um, picture, there is a gate on or a door on one end of the tabernacle. And it is to provide access in. You're not supposed to enter anywhere else. And as I mentioned, when you first go through the door, what you see is an altar, a place of death and a place of sacrifice. And of course, when we come into the presence of the Lord, there is a call to repentance. We're dying out to our old way of life and our old selves. But I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, 
there is one entrance. So just like there is one tabernacle and there is one way in which we approach God, there is one door. There is one point of entrance. And Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, Verily I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. In this early, simple, primitive type. And, and the beauty is, when the children of Israel were getting ready to leave Egypt, the Egyptians gave them all their gold and all their jewels and said, just go, you're killing us, just get out of here. And the purpose for that was to build this tabernacle in the wilderness. And some of it actually got used for that. And there is that doorway by which they were to enter. They were not supposed to worship any other way. And Jesus said, verily I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Lest there be any doubt, the door points to Jesus. He is the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. He shall go in and out and find pasture. He is the means by which we approach God. Now, we understand whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in Jesus' name. But we sometimes need to remind ourselves, and I I think this is clear for all of us, the only way in which our sins get addressed And the only way in which we sinful people can enter into the presence of God is because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the man, Christ Jesus. He is the way into the presence of the Lord. Amen? And he is the only way. And even for us, Our temptation may sometimes be to rely on our own strength, but we have to remember he is the way. We are are sinners, and the only access we have into the presence of the Lord is because of the work of the man, Christ Jesus. And so this is why, and if you read in the Old Testament, or in the Exodus and then all the rituals in Leviticus, frankly, it does not sound very joyful because of all the sacrifices, the killing, the blood. It's, it's really a messy business. But at the same time, the psalmist said, as we were rejoicing at the end of our worship or our singing tonight, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. And then what does he say? Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. The psalmist tapped into something that when I enter, when I go through that door, whatever my circumstances are, I need to enter into his gates with thanksgiving. It's, it's going to be messy and maybe I've got my goat with me or my lamb or my turtle doves or I've got my bullock that I'm going to offer and I've got whatever whatever those circumstances are that I'm bringing with me but 
I'm going to enter into his gates with thanksgiving. And I'm going to come into his courts with praise. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight. We can look back and we can say, man, that door, that is a beautiful picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. And no matter what the circumstances are in my life, I can enter in by the door with thanksgiving. Amen? Amen. Life gets heavy and life gets difficult, but we have a door. (laughs) We have a door into the presence, into the very presence of the Lord. There is a way. Amen. And, you know, you read that and you think, man, David, how, how, how could you say enter in to his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise? Well, for one thing, they realized, for better or for worse, this is our one way into the presence of God. Amen. This is the way. And this is all we've been given. And it may not be pleasant and it may be uncomfortable and it may not, it may not pass all the tests required of high society and be filled with all manner of decorum, but this is the way into the presence of the Lord. And the world may not understand it, and every band of gypsies and nomads that goes past that sees this tent standing up out in the wilderness, they may laugh at the badger skins and the goat skins, but I'm going to enter in with thanksgiving because this is the way, this is the way to the presence of the Lord. And for us, it's the same thing. This is the way into the presence of the Lord. And whether we're gathering here, we always say, when we come to church, enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. That's appropriate. We are coming together for that purpose. And this is where we gather together. And this is where we, the Lord meets us here. But we also know that We have the earnest of our inheritance. We've received the Holy Ghost. And we can have fellowship and communion with God individually. There's beauty in coming together as a community and enjoying each other. But in our prayer time, God forgive me for all the times I treated it like it was a chore or a drudgery. But when I come to the door, let me enter into his gates with thanksgiving. What a privilege we have to be able to pray. What a privilege we have to be able to enter into the very presence of God and to lift our hearts and lift our hands and sense his presence. Do you you have a sense tonight of how many thousands of years people lived and how many untold lives were lived without really being able to sense and feel the presence of God that we feel when we just come in and on a Wednesday night, we just walk in and start singing the praises and the Holy Ghost comes in? When you begin to walk around your house and sing praises or some song comes on the radio and the Spirit of the Lord comes in, I will enter His gates with thanksgiving. And I will enter his courts with praise. I may be dragging along some animal for sacrifice. I may be dragging along some circumstance that's keeping me back. Something that would keep me from the presence of the Lord. But I know that whatever this situation is, the answer for it is inside those gates. 
And I will find the answer in those courts. So no matter what the circumstance is that I come with, I will enter into his gates with thanksgiving. We ought to just purpose that in our heart. Amen. Hallelujah. Circumstances don't necessarily miraculously get changed whenever you come through the doors. But we do know that whatever we are bringing along with us, the real answer for it is in the presence of the Lord. And we would do the Lord, his sacrifice, and his work a disservice to come before his presence dragging our circumstances and letting our circumstances steal our joy and our thanksgiving and our praise. This is where we find the answer. But again, we have the benefit. That's not all. (laughs) Again, we have the benefit of hindsight. When they came to that tabernacle, they were looking for something better. The book of Hebrews is the book of better things. If you read Hebrews, the writer will bring up one topic after another, saying, you know, the Lord said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. The writer of the book of Hebrews takes the same sort of approach. The old covenant said this, but we have a better thing. I'm persuaded we have better things. Now think about those Old Testament folks coming to the door. They didn't fully realize. But one reason why they could enter in with thanksgiving is because everything in there pointed to a greater day. There was a day coming when the perfect priest and the perfect tabernacle and the perfect altar and the perfect sacrifice and the perfect washing, it would all, it would all come together. And this is what Hebrews chapter 9, he says, while as the way into the holiest of all was not yet manifest, they were given this old tabernacle as... um, just a, a type. It was just a shadow. But it wasn't the real, it wasn't the good stuff. It was just the law, Paul said, was our schoolmaster in Galatians to bring us to Christ. The law was just dragging us along, trying to show us what Christ was going to be like. So when he got here, we would recognize it. And really and truly, with every trip to that Old Testament tabernacle, they were saying, this is not sufficient, and this is not going to forgive my sins. But I'm doing this by faith because I believe there is a day coming when things will be done completely. And so I can enter in with thanksgiving, knowing it ain't all done today. It's not all working today. The sins may get rolled ahead, but they're not really being forgiven. But I can come in with thanksgiving and with singing and praise into his course because I know there is a day that is coming. And we look back and we rejoice because we see all the ways in which Christ is typified in that Old Testament tabernacle and all of the work that he's done for us. We come in here and our sins are forgiven. He's given us the earnest of our inheritance and it's sitting on the inside of us and we feel the Holy Ghost and we feel a witness with each other and we're so excited. But you know what? When we come into this place in the same way, we are exercising faith and we're saying there's coming a day it's even going to be better than this. It's going to be better than this. 
some of you are already looking at your watch because we've we just we're so limited. This reality, you know, I mean, we can't stay here forever. We we have to go rest. We have to take something to eat, get something to drink. We can't we we carve out these little spaces of time. I'm not critical. This is just this is the nature. This is what we deal with. It's just the reality of our lives today. But when we come here, we are exercising faith and we're saying, there's coming a day. We're going to go into the presence of the Lord. It's not just going to be the earnest of our inheritance. It's going to be the whole shebang. And we're never going to leave. We're never going to walk out the door. And because of that, because of that hope, I can come into his gates with thanksgiving. Not just that he's going to fix my problem today. Not just that he's going to help me deal with my circumstance for today. But that there's coming a day. What did we sing on Sunday? Blessed assurance. (laughs) Jesus is mine. But that's just the earnest. Oh, what a foretaste. (laughs) Just a little taste off the end of the spoon of glory divine. I'm an heir of salvation. I've been purchased by God. I've been born of his spirit and washed in his blood. When I come into his presence, I want to come with thanksgiving. Why don't we stand together? I'm thankful tonight for the word of the Lord. And for the spirit of the Lord, Lord, we're honored and we're grateful tonight to be able to come into your presence with thanksgiving and into your courts with praise. Lord, I pray that you would help us tonight. You would give us that insight, that you would put it inside of us, that no matter how heavy things are, no matter how difficult things are, there would always be an element of thanksgiving and praise when we come into your presence. Knowing you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life, you're the only source. You're our strength and you're the only solution to our situation. But more than that, Lord, there is coming a day where no heartache shall come. Oh, we can rejoice today knowing that that day surely is coming. What a grateful people we ought to be. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity. Amen, amen. Lord bless you. We will pick up with more furniture. I know you're excited about that. But believe the Lord has something for us as a church and is going to lead us in to something that will help us, help us to guide our own lives and our own growth. We're just going to trust the Lord together. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you. In Jesus' name.